Ladies and gentlemen, we are now going to talk about the two witnesses, which is by common belief the most difficult symbol to interpret in the book of Revelation. But before we get on to that, let's set our context again of the whole book. There's three themes. The first theme is the two cities. The old Jerusalem is going down, the apostate Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees going down, destroyed. God's going, Jesus is going to judge it in order to establish the new kingdom, the new Jerusalem. That's two cities. The second theme is two beasts. The land beast is Israel, the sea beast is Rome, and both of those are going to be thrown in the lake of fire, destroyed. The third theme is that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom, a kingdom in which he will rule and we will rule with him. That's one of the themes that we'll talk about today, but most of the, what we're going to talk about today, again, is the destruction of Jerusalem. And now let's go to the context of the book itself. The structure of this section, the judgment on Israel section, is seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and then the seven trumpets is the seven bowls. That's the structure. Uh, something else that we need to remember is that there's interludes between the seals and the trumpet. That interlude has the sealing of the 144,000, which is the Jewish Christians in uh, Jerusalem, which, were, which escaped the city during the siege by the Roman army, and they escaped to the city of Pella across the Jordan River, the sealing of the 144,000. And then we had a sealing, a, a, excuse me, not a sealing, but a protection of the same Jewish Christians between the the trumpets and the bowls. That was when the angel marked off, measured the Jerusalem, which stood for the people of God, to protect them. So that's the general background. Now we're going to start with the two witnesses. As I said, this is one of the most difficult passages in the scripture, in, in the book of Revelation, and in the scripture itself. I was reading the commentary that Steve gave me last week, who this commentator quoted another commentator 100 years ago who had found 10 different interpretations of the two witnesses. And he was a futurist, so that's 10 different futurist uh, interpretations. And then I have found three different preterist interpretations, so everybody splits all over the place. So if you don't agree with what I say, that's, no, that's not a surprise. Take all this with a big grain of salt. I'm going to do the best I can. This is the best interpretation I can come up with. I remember Steve... Steve and Lee Sheen and I go over each session that I do to help me vet what I'm going to talk about. And uh, he said, boy, I'm glad I'm not teaching that. Well, I'm, I'm sorry I'm up here myself. <laughs> However, something happened to me one time to really help me interpret this, this passage. I was an elder in a small rural church in South Carolina Camden, South Carolina, and I had a fellow elder named Buster Rush, and he had a beard. He was kind of kind of a full white beard, but somebody came in, a, a grifter actually, but he came into the church, and he had a really big, long, white beard, so I was trying to be nice to the visitor, so I went up to him and said, how you doing? My name's Dan Trotter. What's your name? He said his name was Elijah. I said, what's your last name, Elijah? He says, no, I don't have a last name. I'm the Elijah in Revelation 11, <laughs> and I said, oh, well, well nice to meet you, Elijah. And I said, and I'm thinking, I've got to get some help here. <laughs> so, so I start looking for my fellow elder, Buster Rush. I said, Buster, come over here. I want to introduce you to Elijah. So, 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 so Buster came over, and Elijah looked at him and went, Moses! <laughs> so from that, I figured that God, 
God would use that unfortunate experience to teach me who the two witnesses are. <laughs> now, we need to actually get past the idea that the two witnesses are two individuals. All right, this is symbolism. All right, and the and I'm going to assume as we go through here, I'm going to tell you up front where I'm going is the two witnesses. <clears throat> are symbols for Old Testament prophecy, which is fulfilled in New Testament prophecy, the spirit of prophecy, the truth. So that's going to be our working assumption. We'll start in verse 3, the previous two verses we did Wednesday night. I will empower my two witnesses, Jesus says to John, I will empower my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. All right, first of all, we see that these two individuals that John sees in his visions, they are likened to four different objects. All right, there's four different symbols here. We got two witnesses. Let's say I'll count them this way. We got two witnesses. They are two prophets. They are two olive trees. And they're two lampstands. We're going to use Old Testament imagery to describe these two witnesses in terms of the Old Testament. Why is two emphasized so much? Two, 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 two. There's a reason for that. The, well, first of all, let me back up again. Let's talk about, before we talk about two, let's talk about why are they prophets? Well, it says right here, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. So that's how we know they're prophets. So the two witnesses are prophets. They wear sackcloth. What did Old Testament prophets wear? Cyclops. So that's easy, all right? Now the point of the two, their prophecy is true because of the two. The two that's mentioned so many times. Out of the mouths of two witnesses may every fact be established. That's in Deuteronomy 19.15. Only on the evidence of two witnesses. So you get two witnesses, two witnesses, two witnesses, two witnesses. That establishes the truth. So these prophets are prophesying truth. Truth. Their prophecy is true. Now let's go to verses 5 and 6. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy, which is 1260 days. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood. So we see that the witnesses are powerful. What is fire a symbol of? You see, if you see a dragon come towards you with fire coming out of his mouth, what does that tell you? You're going to be consumed. You're going to be consumed. It has power. In fact, Elijah, when in I think it's 1 Kings 17, when Ahaziah sent some troops to kill Elijah because he got tired of Elijah's uncomfortable prophesying, 50 troops came with the captain. Elijah looked at him. And they say, Elijah, uh, Ahaziah has come to arrest you. And Elijah goes, I'm praying, uh, excuse me, God, <laughs> fire wiped him out. Fire's probably lightning, I think. Ahaziah says, well, that's fine. Well, I'm going to send 50 more troops. Elijah says, uh-uh, God, please, <laughs> fire wiped him out. So fire means these Old Testament prophets are powerful prophets. They speak with power. And notice the word power shows up in these two verses twice. Power to stop it from raining. If, if a prophet can say, it will not going to rain, not only today, but for three and a half years, that's powerful. How about this? A, a prophet can take water and turn it into blood, that's powerful. Okay? So we got, we're starting simple here, okay? The two prophets are powerful and they speak truth. 
Now, the 1260 days, I didn't mention that. Um, the tendency is to want to put that in the three and a half years of the Jewish war, but I don't do that. I think there's a reason why this prophet prophesied for three and a half years that it not rain. Well, it says it did not rain during the days of their prophecy, which was 1260 days. Now, how many of you can see here who these two men are that are referred to in verse 6? Yes, yeah, see, it's pretty easy. So that's Elijah and Moses. See, the guy wasn't too far off, the guy that came to see me in the church, Elijah and Moses. <laughs> All right, power is the next characteristic of Old Testament prophecy. All right, so verse 6, these men have the power to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy and the power to turn the waters to blood. We see Elijah in James 5.17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Now, in our verse that we just read, up here, Revelation 11.3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. What is the relationship of 1,260 days and three years and a half? It's the same thing. If you take 360 and multiply it by three and a half, 360 is a lunar year, and you multiply it by three and a half, you get 1,260 days. We talked Wednesday night about how this symbolism is all through the book of Revelation. It's half of a seven. Seven is the perfect number. Half of that means it's, it symbolizes Doom, gloom, lamentation, and woe, judgment, bad stuff, all right? And if it doesn't rain for three years and a half, that's bad, right? So here we have Elijah the prophet praying that it not rain for 1,260 days. In Revelation, we got no uh, prophecy for 1,260 days that it won't rain. So obviously John is referring to Elijah, right? But is he referring to Elijah the individual, or is it a symbol? We need to remember that. It's not necessarily an individual. Now, like Moses, these two prophets are, because in Exodus 7.20, he, Moses, raised the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned to blood. Well, the passage we just read, it says this, one of the two witnesses had the well, it said the two witnesses had the power to strike the water and put plagues on the earth. Well, that's Moses in the ten plagues. So that's easy. Now, some people might ask, well, how is Moses a prophet? Elijah's a prophet. Obviously, these are two prophets, and these prophets are supposed to symbolize prophecy. Well, Moses is not a prophet, so how does he symbolize prophecy? Well, actually, Moses is a prophet. This is a verse that is not too well known amongst Christians, I don't think, but in Deuteronomy 18, 18, God said this, I, God, will raise up for them, the people of Israel, a prophet like you, Moses, from among the brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. So Moses is a prophet, as well as a lawgiver. Okay? So we've got Elijah and Moses. The two witnesses are have the characteristics of Elijah and Moses. But it doesn't mean that they are Elijah and Moses individually. They're, they're symbols with of power and truth of God's word. Because these two witnesses are also compared to two olive trees, two lampstands. Now the reference here is obviously to Zechariah chapter 4, Zerubbabel and Joshua, which I'll talk about in just a minute. Well, if, they, if the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, literally they can't be Joshua and Zerubbabel at the same time, can they? So the two witnesses, again, this is symbolism. 
two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, like Zerubbabel and Joshua powerfully operated via the Holy Spirit, bringing light to the people of God. This is what the two witnesses are like. Now, we're going to have to go into Zechariah and study a little bit of the, Im- of the imagery there. So let's, go, let's do that. I'll just look at this picture here. Well, let me, let's give you some background. Um, Zechariah prophesied he was, a, he was an exilic prophet who was talking about the return of Israel from the Babylonian captivity. And the Israelites were tasked with building a second temple to replace the temple that the Babylonians had burnt down. And the priest in charge of the Israelites was a guy named Joshua. And the governor or king, let's say governor, was Zerubbabel. So the civil function was taken by Zerubbabel, and the priestly function was done by Joshua. Now, if you read the prophecy, I'm I'm not going to go through the scripture. I'm just going to show you the picture. These two olive trees right here, one of them is Joshua, and one of them is Zerubbabel. Okay? They have got a branch going into this golden bowl right here. And that branch is full of olive oil. And the olive oil flows continuously. It never stops. The olive oil goes into this bowl, and then at the bottom of the bowl, there's seven more spouts or tubes or pipes. Each pipe goes into a candle or a flame, and the flame burns. There's seven of them. So there's seven spouts and seven candles. Seven is the symbol of what? Yeah, divine completion is a complete, perfect light, divine light. Light is obvious. Light is understanding. So these flames burn forever. Now, what about this seven-branch candlestick? What is that a symbol of? Israel, the people of God, because they are the ones who are being filled with the Holy Spirit and then uh, shining the light of God out to the world. Joshua and Zerubbabel are both doing this by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a famous verse in Zechariah 4, 6, the second half of the verse. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So the Holy Spirit is constantly ministering through Joshua and Zerubbabel. And what's John's point? What is he trying to make here? He's trying to say that the two witnesses are constantly, by referring to the two witnesses as, as uh, two olive trees, He's referring to Joshua and Zerubbabel who continually give olive oil slash Holy Spirit to Israel to the light, to, to, so that Israel can light up the world. Well, likewise, these two witnesses are symbolic of wit- the witness of God that goes out to give light to the world. Hey, brother, uh, what, yes. Uh, that's not Joshua of the book of Joshua. This is Joshua who was the priest that was in charge of things when the Israelites came in 537 B.C. When they came back. Huh? You got that famous priest and king. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about bringing that up because you got Moses as the law and then Elijah is the prophet and then you've got the king here as a rubble. But, I, but since John is focusing on prophecy, I figured I'd just stick with prophecy that, that the illusions are mainly referring to. Okay? So, now, 
That's prophecy in the Old Testament. But now we'll see John in the book of Revelation is going to take this Old Testament prophecy and, and also include New Testament prophecy in his image here of the two witnesses. Now, how do we get from Moses to Jesus? Well, Moses resembles Jesus. I'm going to give you a quote from Peter before the beautiful gate in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me. Now, I just quoted that verse to you, but now Peter's quoting it. And Peter says that there's going to be another prophet coming after Moses. He's going to be like Moses. Who was Peter referring to? Who was he referring to? Remember, he's preaching at the beautiful gate. He's evangelizing. He's obviously, if you read chapter 3, he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, look, this is a fulfillment of what Moses said. Moses said there was going to be a prophet like me, Moses, that comes after Moses. And here he is. His name is Jesus. And he's healing everybody at the beautiful gate. So now we have uh, Jesus as a prophet like Moses. How about Elijah? This is a little bit easier. We know about this. Remember, Jesus was talking to John the Baptist's disciples in Matthew eleven fourteen, and he tells them, hey, John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. He says he, he identified Elijah with John the Baptist. So now you have the spirit of Moses, the spirit of prophecy coming from Moses, the spirit of prophecy coming from Elijah, fulfilled at the very end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. John the Baptist is really the first prophet of the New Covenant. Jesus, of course, is a prophet. Of course, he's established the New Covenant. And they are right at the tail end of the Old Covenant, uh, right before Jesus died. And so we still have prophecy still going forward. Now, Revelation 11, 7, when they finish their testimony, that's the two witnesses, when they finish their testimony, so you think, well, when when did prophecy stop? The beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them. Who's the beast that comes out of the abyss? Satan, because the abyss is hell. The beast is Satan. He will make war with them, and he will conquer them and kill them. So when in history did it look like Old Testament prophecy was kaput? Remember all the Old Testament prophets? They prophesied about a Messiah that's going to come, set up a, a worldly kingdom of peace and paradise and joy and happiness. When did that, when did that dream die? For the disciples, when did it die? died. When Jesus died. Go to verse 8, Revelation 11, 8. Their dead bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which prophetically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, fortunately, it's real easy to see where the great city is. Where, what is it? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, because it says where their Lord was crucified. A little side point here. It's pro- Jerusalem is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, there's no scripture that ties Jerusalem directly with Egypt, except the history of Egypt is a place that put into bondage the people of God, right? So, but there is a place where Jerusalem is specifically called Sodom. In fact, I've got a lot of scriptures. I've got one here to show you. Jeremiah 23, 14. Among the prophets of Jerusalem also I saw a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the lands, the hands of evildoers, and none turns his back on evil. They are all like Sodom to me. They, that means all the, the unbelieving apostate Israelites, are all like Sodom to me. Jerusalem's residents are like Gomorrah. 
So that's, that's, this is easy. This is Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified. Now, why did John mention Jerusalem where their Lord was crucified? He's just mentioned that the two prophets are dead, the devil killed them, and then he mentions Jerusalem because he wants his reader's mind to go to what happened in Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified because that was the end of God's message to the world, apparently for three and a half days, for three days. So we go to Revelation 11, verses 9 through 11. And representatives from the peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. Those who live on the land will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets brought judgment to those who live on the land. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. So great fear fell on those who saw them. Now, some of this is relatively easy, so let's take the easy stuff first. Who were the people's tribes, languages, and nations? Gentiles. And what was the empire that had all those peoples and tribes and tongues and nations within the empire? Roman, Roman Empire. All right, the Romans will view the, their bodies. Again, remember now, this is in John's vision that he's seeing this. For three and a half days, when I remember, three and a half is a symbol of lamentation, woe, mourning, defeat, gloom, and doom because it's half of seven. Don't confuse this with three and a half years. Three and a half years is the length of the Jewish war, the Great Tribulation, and all that. This is three and a half days. It's symbolic. It's not exactly literal. Now, the Gentile nations will not permit their bodies to be put in a tomb. Now, what is the worst thing you can do to a Jew to show him disrespect and dishonor? It's to not allow him to be buried properly. And so... We see here the Romans, by putting Jesus up on the cross, and originally they wanted to throw him into a pauper's tomb until Joseph of Arimathea came and got him out. So they said, hey, no respect. This guy's a false messiah. He's causing political unrest in the empire. We don't like that. Kill him. Get rid of him. And then in verse 10 we see the Jews who were in cahoots with the Romans those who live on the land, that's the Jews, the apostate Jews then, they will gloat over them, gloat over the two witnesses, because this is symbolic of gloating over the fact that prophecy is dead because Jesus is dead. They will gloat and celebrate, send gifts to one another. Because these two prophets brought judgment to those who live on the land. Remember, Jesus prophesied judgment over Israel over and over again. It's often not noticed in the parables. He, he's going to come back and burn your city. And your house is left to you desolate. Your temple will be desolate. All these things will not pass away. The one stone is not left on another. Your temple comes down. And Jesus told them over and over again that judgment was coming, so they need to repent. But they didn't. And so they didn't like that. I mean, nobody likes to be told that they're getting destroyed, are you? You don't like it, do you? Nobody likes that. So they didn't like it. So, ha, ah, we got rid of the false prophet, all the Pharisees and the Sadducees are saying, hallelujah, hallelujah, he's gone, he's gone. But... After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. So in John's vision, the prophets come back to life. And that's symbolic of the fact that prophecy came back to life when Jesus came back to life. And they stood on their feet, so great fear fell on those who saw them. And you can imagine in history when the Jews found out that the tomb was empty and they couldn't find Jesus' body and they couldn't find it anywhere... And all of a sudden, these people are going all over Jerusalem. They just got filled with the Holy Spirit. They're going around getting everybody saved. And, oh, my gosh, we got a problem. Great fear fell on those. 
Maybe some of them remember when Jesus stood up, stood up at his trial at Caiaphas and said, some of you will not die until you see Jesus, the Son of Man, coming. In other words, I'm coming after you, basically. So great fear fell on them. We go to verse 12 and 13. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, that's the two witnesses heard this in John's vision, heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while the enemies watched them. That's, that symbolizes the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 13, in that moment a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, this illustrates a theme that I've said a lot. There's lots of judgment in Revelation, but the purpose of the judgment is to establish a kingdom. So there's good news in Revelation. There's not just bad news. And we, of course, receive the good news because we are God's elect. The unbelievers, they're facing God's judgment, so it's bad news for them. Bitter and sweet, like the scroll that John ate. So this violent earthquake is the bad news for the apostate Jews. When you see earthquake, you're talking about disaster, of course. A tenth, of, where is it? A tenth of the city fell. What city were we just talking about? Remember where their Lord was crucified? That's Jerusalem, right? A tenth of the city fell. Why only a tenth? Well, if you give a Tenth of your money. I'm not saying a tithe is part of the New Testament law. It's not. But let's say you choose 10% to give to God. In the Old Testament, it was 10%. So if you, if, if you choose to give 10% to God, what does that mean? Does that mean that God gets 10% and not 90%? Is that what it means? No, it means, God, here's your down payment. Here's 10% for you. The other 90% is yours too. So that's what the idea is here. Yeah, the city fell. Remember, we're not quite at the 100% judgments yet. The, the, the seals were one-fourth judgments, 25%. The trumpets were 33%. We're getting ready to get to the bold judgments, and those are 100%. And so this is just a down payment where we are here before the whole city falls. And uh, 7,000 people killed. Again, this is symbolic, I'm sure, but even literally, a typical city in, in the ancient Near East is going to be, what, about... 50, 60, 70,000 people, a tenth of that, 7,000. So it could be just a reference to the, to the down payment aspect of it. Or it could be seven stands for divinity and a thousand stands for lots of, like that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That means a whole heap of hills. So that's a pretty good number of people that God's going to take for his tenth in this, in this destruction of Israel. Now, the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, there's a split of opinion on this that has nothing to do with preterism versus futurism. I mean, I, the future is split on it, too. Is these people that are survivors of this earthquake, are they Christians giving glory to God because they've repented? When they see the city being destroyed, they say, oh, God, no, I'm so sorry. I want to, I want to follow you. Some commentators say that's what it is. Other commentators say that it means that the survivors gave glory to God by saying, yes, God, you win, I'm dead, boom, you've got me. In other words, they don't repent, but they give glory to God by confessing that God is God. I tend to fall in the latter category because I am not aware of any historical reference to Christians getting saved in Jerusalem as the judgment fell on Jerusalem. Most of the Christians, remember, had removed themselves from the city and were in Pella during the judgment on Jerusalem. 
All right, so now we go to Revelation eleven fourteen. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Now, there were seven seals and seven trumpets, and then there was an angel flying through the air, and he says, woe, woe, woe. And the three woes are specifically identified with the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet, and the seventh trumpet. Okay? So the first woe is the fifth trumpet. The sixth woe, the, the, excuse me, the second woe is the sixth trumpet. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So the third woe is the seventh trumpet. Now, what is the seventh trumpet? The seven bowls. In other words, we got a tenth of the city destroyed, but hey, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to get worse. It's coming soon. So we go to Revelation eleven fifteen through 17. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. Thank you, angel. <laughs> seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And there's your third theme of Revelation. The kingdom of the Messiah is being established. So we just had judgment in the last couple of verses, and then we got the kingdom right here. Again, that's the whole idea of Revelation. In order for God to establish his kingdom, he's got to judge the evil people, of course, stopping his kingdom from coming forth. And so he does it. The 24 elders, that's 12 elders representing the 12 tribes of Israel and 12 elders representing the apostles, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, so the people of God who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God, saying, We thank you, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So people in heaven are happy with the judgment that's coming on Jerusalem. Now, I don't know about you, but it's difficult for me to get happy when I see people judged. But here, they're happy. They're saying, Thank you, Lord. You're destroying the evil that's in the world. And I think it's because we don't look at evil the way God does. We don't like evil. But I'm telling you, God is so holy when He even sees a little black thing, speck, He gets very, very upset about it. Whether it's a little white lie, you know, a little tiny thing. Doesn't, it's just horrible. He wants to wipe. Well, when you've got somebody that's, that's killed the Son of God, kill, He sends His Son to the earth to save the whole world, and they kill Him? Oh. That's something to praise God about when the judgment comes. We need to thank God for judgment on evil, even if it's the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. There's the beginning of the kingdom. Remember, the early church started out with a band of 12, maybe 120 disciples, very small, and they were kind of scattered out through Jerusalem. They didn't go outside of Jerusalem until Acts 8. Then they kind of scattered out in the Roman Empire, and they were meeting in homes, and they were just a little ragtag band of people, and they were persecuted everywhere they went. Jesus said they would follow you from synagogue to synagogue in Israel, or actually in the Roman Empire. They did the same thing to Paul, and they persecuted the Christians, and they did everything in their power to stop the Christians from succeeding and setting up a kingdom. But now... After Jerusalem is judged and Jerusalem is destroyed, that means no synagogue in the Roman Empire, in Anatolia, in present-day Turkey, all of those where Paul went on his three journeys, none of them are going to stop the spread of the gospel anymore, and nobody is going to stop the spread of gospel among the Jews because the kingdom is getting ready to spread all over this planet. Now we go to verse 18. And the nations were enraged... 
and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the land. Now, the nations, who's, which empire is that? Romans. So the Romans were enraged against Israel. Remember, they started the Jewish war. They destroyed Israel. So the Roman Empire was enraged at Israel, destroyed it, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged. Now I got that highlighted in red because that's a problem. Because when we think of judged, what do we think of? Do we think positive or negative? Negative. negative. But actually that's not always true. I'm, well, actually you can look here in the crosswalk lexicon I use. Judge, one of the definitions was to approve, to esteem, to prefer. Now how, does, how can that be? Well, I used to practice law. Let's say I had a client, and he is suing, let's say my client is suing Gerald for $100, okay? And, I, and Gerald says, yeah, I owe the $100, I'll pay you. So I go to the judge, I type up a judgment for the judge to sign. The judge gets it, and he signs by order of the judge, blah, 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 blah. Gerald Scarborough shall pay to Dan Trotter's client $100, and then the judge signs it. That's it. And the piece of paper is called a judgment. I go to the courthouse, I file the judgment in the courthouse, okay? Now, that judgment's bad for Gerald, right? It's bad because he has to pay $100, right? But how about for my client? Is that judgment good or bad? It's a good thing. And so the time came for the dead to be judged. That means all the dead that had been persecuted by the apostate Jews. Now, got another problem here. I've been talking about the Jews who were sealed, and they were measured off and protected. They escaped to Pella. Not one of them died. And that's true. But we got to remember before the Jewish war, Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse, he said, hey, they're going to chase you from synagogue to synagogue. Maybe he said that earlier, actually. But in the Olivet Discourse, uh, he, he talked all about the trouble that we're going to have. They're going to persecute you and, and so forth. And he says in, in the Luke version of the Olivet Discourse, he says, and they will even kill some of you. Well, those people are killed. You could say, well, they were sealed anyway because they went to heaven. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. I think the sealing was done for the particular Christian Jews in Jerusalem during the war, during the Jewish war. During the run-up to the war between 30 and 70, there's still a lot of persecution going on. And these dead needed to get judgment. And they needed to get a positive judgment from the judge. They, needed to, they wanted justice, in other words. They want justice. Now, Helping my interpretation along here is the very next phrase here. Time for the dead to be judged and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints. Remember, the prophets are being killed in Jerusalem from Abel to Zechariah. They're being killed. The saints have been, been, been killed too. And they need justice. Those who fear your name, they need justice, the small and great, to destroy those who destroy the land. Now, who are those that destroy the land? Well, I take this to be the Jews themselves destroyed their own land. They brought judgment down on it and just wiped it out because of all their evil, but for killing Jesus. Okay? Some people say, well, it could be the nations who were enraged against the land. The Romans destroyed the land, and God will destroy them too. Now, as we get on into the book, we're going to see the Roman Empire, which is the sea beast, gets thrown into the lake of fire, so it will be destroyed too. Okay? So that could be true. But I think the context here is better that, that to, give to give justice to all of these Christians who have been persecuted by these apostate Jews, 
that God is going to do that by destroying the Jews who destroyed the land. We go to verse 19. And the temple of God which in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now, when you see lightning and thunder and earthquake and hailstorm, that's easy, right? What does that symbolize? Judgment. But along with the judgment of the, of the evil, there's the establishment of God's kingdom along with that. In, in fact, the, judgment need, the evil needs to be judged in order to establish the kingdom. And this is what we have here. The temple of God, which is in heaven. A temple is a house where God lives. And remember, this is all actually what John was seeing in his vision. Remember, he's got the throne in the middle, God sitting on there. And as we go through the book, we have the 24 elders, we got the four living creatures, we got the lamb, Jesus, we got the bronze altar, we've got the golden altar. Now we have the Ark of the Covenant, which is, of course, in the Old Testament temple. So all of that's in his temple, and the temple where God lives was opened. Now, was the temple opened in the Old Testament? Could you just walk in? Could Nick just walk into the temple of God? What would happen to Nick if he walked into the temple of God? That's right. Or maybe, who knows? But he would be toast, right? But now the temple of God is open. That's a symbol of the fact that now, because of the destruction of Jerusalem having been destroyed, now the whole world can come into the temple of God and people of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people can believe in Jesus. Remember the angel that was flying through heaven? And he had an eternal gospel to preach to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people. So the idea of the kingdom, our third theme, is everywhere in the book of Revelation. And here it is right here. And this kind of gives us the reason why the seven bowls of judgment have got to fall. So that this can be established. Again, we need to focus on the good news as well as the bad news in the book of Revelation. So how do we apply this? The kingdom of Christ will be established no matter what. That's a given. I don't care how bad things look. I don't care about the moral failings of church leaders, which we've been consumed with the last week or so. I don't care about the cultural compromise of Christians. I don't care about doctrinal faithfulness of Christians. I don't care about persecutions from the godless. I don't care. I mean, I do care. I don't like that that stuff happens. But as far as whether the kingdom of God is going to be established, the kingdom of God is going to be established. Look at what Moses had to go through when he's trying to take these two million people through the desert. Every one of them died that was on, under tw- uh, um, over 20. Every one of them died because they were rebellious, apostate, unbelieving people. And Moses is trying to establish the kingdom of God. Well, I say, man, man, that's just like being in America, trying to establish the kingdom of God with the material that we have in the church today. God help us. But the kingdom of God will be established. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship. Reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.